God didn't speak to his people for 400 years. He was silent. Nothing. It started around 430 B.C. when God's final words came from Malachi, which displayed both his kindness and his severity. Judgment is coming. But for those who believe, it says, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. That's pretty much it. 400 years. Silence. So then what happened? Though the Jewish people had rebuilt the temple and restored the law, all was not well. They had wandered from God. His ways were far from their hearts and centuries of hardships were upon them. First, they fell to the Greeks, and then to the Egyptians, and then to the Syrians who persecuted them greatly. The temple was desecrated. Tens of thousands of God's people were slaughtered. All the while, silence. Where's God? On one hand, I would think that those years would drive God's people to study Scripture, to seek God, to cling to His promises. Instead, God's people became deaf and blind, unable to fathom what was coming. I wonder if they yearned for the days when God wasn't silent, when he spoke through prophets, angels, dreams, and burning bushes. I wonder if they looked up to the sky and pleaded, God, deliver us. We'll respond the right way this time. Can't you see that we need you? Silence. Generations came and went. Hope for many was lost, but it was about to return in a most unexpected way. God was writing a new law while simultaneously fulfilling the old. Its ink would drip with love. Its pages would be filled with hope. You see, God had always been at work. The silence, which had been deafening for so long, was about to end with the sound of a heartbeat. God in a body. Now, if that isn't a radical move on God's part to change the world, then I don't know what he could have come up with. God himself come in the flesh. Are you moved? Or are you in a state of, uh, I don't know, commonness? Because... We become accustomed to the story, especially if you've been around church and, and you've been a, a Christian for a period of time. But God in a body coming to transform and change the world after 400 years of silence. Try to comprehend that. How old's this country? It's not 400 years old. 400 years of silence. And then God spoke to Mary. The angels proclaimed that Christ would be born into this world. Now I want to share with you a little bit up front about some of my challenge and exhortation to all of us today. I don't know if uh, you've been around church for a while or maybe you're just checking God out for first time in a long time today. But I want you to think back to maybe when there was uh, some spark in your heart 
an urge and, a, and maybe a commitment that you made to be a Christ follower. Maybe you prayed a prayer somewhere. Maybe uh, you'd been attending church for a while. And, you know, you recall when that happened in your life. But maybe, just maybe, it's sort of grown a little bit dull and dead. And maybe if you were to be honest with yourself as it comes this Christmas season, there's not a lot of real engagement with knowing that God in the body, Christ who was born in the flesh, who then ascended to the heavens and came and brought his spirit, that there's just not a lot of, of exciting engagement with Jesus Christ in your life like maybe there used to be. And could it be that this Christmas season, and even as we head towards the first of the year, that you can make a step in a direction that maybe you've not made in a while. And I'm going to have a share today a little bit on a, a story that's going to help us engage in going that direction. You see, we um, mentioned last week that Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year. But it's not necessarily because of what is happening around us. It's because of what happened when God sent his son into the world. And for us to really re-engage, we've got to capture afresh and anew what that means for us in a personal measure. Because he was the light of the world. And the light came into the darkness. And I want us to focus on that a little bit. We have a lot of Christmas parties going on this time of year. This was one of my, my two that I was a part of this week. And this was some of our rooted family. And we had a little bit of celebration at Jennifer's house there. And uh, good times. And, and there was some great uh, fellowship hanging together and food. And then she had this weird gift that was wrapped in the middle of uh, the living room. And it was cellophane wrapped in a big, big ball. It was a great idea. And the kids and everybody, we would unwrap the cellophane one turn at a time, and there'd be a piece of candy, and then there'd be a note, and you would get to do something like stick a bow on somebody's head or, or uh, you know, dance out a particular Christmas carol, whatever it was. And as we moved through the big ball of uh, uh, plastic, of, of the cellophane stuff, you would come across a figurine every now and then. And so we would stack the little nativity set with the figurines. And so what I want us today to do in re-engaging is to think about the traditional nativity set that we often um, just sort of take for granted. You may have your own, we have our own in our family, and the figurines are there, and you sort of place them together. Sometimes we have the kids tell the story of Christmas from the Bible and you have the wise men, you have the shepherds, you have the animals, you have the angels, and then you have Mary, and you have Joseph, and you have little baby Jesus, right? And let me ask you a question. Which character in the nativity do you identify with the most? Is it a shepherd being startled by the uh, proclamation of Christ? Is it the, the wise men? Maybe identify with one of the animals. I, I don't know. Mary, Joseph, Jesus, not. Don't go there. Right? <laughs> Which character of the nativity set do you identify with most? Well, I tell you what. I'm going to have us identify with a particular character in the nativity story today that you do not see around a nativity set. And that is King Herod. King Herod. Why isn't King Herod there? 
Well, we're going to look at that today. King Herod uh, was king of Judea. And uh, just to give a little backdrop uh, to what's going on, I want you to look at this map. This map depicts the Roman Empire in the time of Christ's birth. All right, in the first century thereafter, actually. And you see in the circle, you see Judea, you see Jerusalem and Bethlehem. But Rome controlled the known world around the Mediterranean Sea at that time. And they had been expanding things from one uh, generation to the next. And in 44 B.C., 44 before Christ, Julius Caesar was leader of the Roman Republic. It was a republic at that time. They had a senate and some other kinds of leadership government teams. But Julius Caesar, you remember what happened to him in 44 B.C.? He was killed. It was murdered by the senate people and people in that, Brutus in there, Ate Brute, all right? You got your Shakespeare stuff going on. You too, Brutus, his friend, you know, was a part of the group of people that assassinated and killed him, all right? And there was all kinds of fallout that happened from that. In particular, Julius Caesar's nephew was Octavius. And Octavius would become eventually uh, Caesar Augustus, the first emperor, all right, of Rome. But Octavius and another friend by the name of Mark Antony got together and uh, they decided that they were going to take revenge upon all those who murdered Julius Caesar. And so they took off and and they tracked people down and they killed them and and, uh, Brutus ended up being killed in that regards. Well, it was interesting as people watched uh, Octavius and Mark Anthony because they were both very strong leaders. And it was concerned because, you know, you weren't going to have two sheriffs in Rome. And this is sort of where King Herod comes in. You see, in that nativity scene, I think one of the realities I'd like us all to focus on today is that inside of us, as Andy Stanley says, who framed up some of the thoughts in this series, is that there's a little Herod in all of us. Now, Herod wasn't a part of the Roman government. He was the head of Judea, which Israel The Jews. Herod wasn't actually even a Jew, and that bothered the Jewish people a lot. But he had been placed, he was in leadership as a client, sort of a colony of the Roman kingdom. And he was allowed to operate there and make sure that the Jewish people didn't get sideways on anything. And just sort of control and make sure the peace was there. Well, Octavius and Mark Anthony, great person... They had legions of uh, allegiance from uh, different uh, Roman legions. And they ended up in a civil war, one with another, as to who would have prominence and leadership. And during this civil war, King Herod, he picked sides. And he chose to side with Mark Anthony and his wife. His wife was sort of famous from Egypt. Do you know what her name was? Cleopatra. And Cleopatra and Mark Anthony had sort of joined forces together. Now, people in Rome, they didn't like Cleopatra because, one, they were concerned that she was going to make some alliance with Rome. And if that happened, then she'd end up being queen. And they just didn't really like her at all. They hated her. And it's like, we do not want her in office. All right. Well, the Civil War actually, you know, didn't last all that long. 
Now, King Herod, he had been siding with uh, Mark Anthony and Cleopatra. He threw lavish parties for them. He gave them gifts. He sided with them in a rebellion in Alexandria. But uh, when the Civil War sort of got at its heart, and it happened quite quickly, um, Cleopatra and Mark Anthony, they, they sailed away. They, they scurried away because they were defeated and crushed by Octavius. Now, if you're King Herod, you've got a problem in the Roman world as the leader of a client state because you picked the wrong horse. Now, what do you do in that particular moment when you realize that you picked the wrong horse in a civil war and who you had befriended was on the outs? Mark Anthony and Cleopatra end up killing themselves. What was King Herod going to do? Well, you got a few choices. One is you could um, kill yourself. Just do with it right now. Two, you could go on the run. But if you go on the run, um, they're going to track you down. Three, you could just try to bunker down and try to see if you can push through and last with this. But King Herod, he did something different. You see, King Herod was very smart. He was very talented. He was very astute. King Herod at that time, he was a great builder. He had rebuilt the temple and through that time. King Herod, he, he built uh, seaports and he built uh, aqueducts. And he was known as a big builder. He's a very smart development kind of guy, leader guy. So he was not going to be on the outs with this particular thing. He liked to be in control and stuff and make things happen because he wanted to, to leave a great legacy and he wanted to continue to lead. So he's thinking, what do I do? And he did a very crafty thing. He actually gets in a boat and he goes to the island of Rhodes. Because that's where Octavius is, who has now taken on the emperorship as Caesar Augustus. And he goes and he knocks on the door where Caesar Augustus is. People come to the door and they go, what? What are you doing here? What are you doing here? I mean, they, they had him on the list of tracking down and doing him away with. And here he shows up with the emperor leadership. Well... King Herod, he walks in, very astutely says this. He says, as you know, Caesar, I sided with your enemy. And as you know, I was loyal to your enemy, Mark Antony, all the way through. From the beginning, through the Civil War, and all the way to the end. And if there's anything you know about me, Caesar Augustus, is that I am loyal to those who I devote myself to. And oh, Caesar Augustus, I now devote my loyalty to you. Whoa. What was Caesar going to do? He looks King Herod, and, and he's awed, and, and he's impressed, and, and, and he's wowed. And so he doesn't take away the kingdom of Judea from King Herod. He actually gives him Samaria and Jericho and Gaza. He sends him back on his way to even rule more because of what King Herod did. So King Herod's not a pawn. 
It's a very smart, sharp guy. And so King Herod, he goes back and he begins to rule. But you need to understand this about King Herod. When this story of Jesus takes place, when God in a body comes about. King Herod was 70 years old or so. And King Herod had um, a, a sickness. He actually had a disease of the kidney. And it was very, very painful. So painful he didn't quite know what to do. But he, he knew that he was in a challenging time. And he, he was one of these guys that just you know, took control of things. And he wanted to make sure things happened. And he, he was, had all this great talent. But his Achilles heel, with his, if you will, it was his ambition. That's why I say sometimes there's a little bit of Herod in all of us. You see, uh, King Herod, he made some really bad, bad decisions because of this misalignment in his soul. In fact, he had, he had uh, four different wills that he walked through. He had ten different wives that he moved through. He had all kinds of sons, and uh, he would change sometimes who he thought would lead as a son. And he'd say, I, I don't think that son should have been placed in, in a line for the throne. And so he would change his will, and then that son didn't work out, so he'd execute him. And then the next son he would grab, and, and finally and probably his sons would go something like, hey, Dad, it's, it's cool. We really don't need to be king. We're fine. Because they saw what was happening before him. He actually killed one of his wives, Herod did. And the rabbis of the day, they fled from him because he was always controlling and, and he was threatening them because he was a control freak, always persistent, always trying to protect always trying to control because he wanted his legacy. He wanted his fame. He wanted his kingdom to endure for generations to come. And so he was really focused on that, King Herod was. So then we go to the text. In Matthew 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Herod got word that there was a king who was learning to walk about five miles south in a town called Bethlehem. And his whole trajectory of life was threatened at that particular moment when he heard about this king. Now, these magi came from the east, which is, uh, would be typical at that time. We don't fully know about them. Sometimes we're referred to as wise men, but that was a later kind of addition. We think of them of having, you know, three of them, but that's not necessarily true. They show up at Jerusalem, and they begin, they begin to sort of poke around and go, hey, 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 we're here. We're here to worship the king of the Jews, the king of the Jews. And what do you think the people did? Because they knew the volatility of King Herod when things weren't going right for King Herod. Do you think they were like, oh, let us help you? They were like, shh, shh, hold, 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 hold. But word got to King Herod that people were in town to look for one who was to be a king. When King Herod heard this, 
What do you think? He was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. I'd be disturbed too. I'd say, let me get out of his way. And when he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. Now, I find this interesting. Maybe to come down because, you know, he really wasn't a Jew, but yet he was leading the Jews, that kind of thing. I mean, you've got history upon history upon history. You know, he referenced the silence of the period of 400 years. And before that, it's like the Jewish people had this longing for a Messiah. And there was, there was knowledge that was out amongst people that, if you don't know if you're a common Jew, you learned it in Sunday school kind of idea, that the Messiah, well, you don't know where the Messiah is going to be born? What's up with you, King Herod, you might be thinking? But he's asking around. He pulls everybody in, everybody that was somebody. Okay, talk to me about this. He's paranoid. He's paranoid. Trying to um, be, he's persistent. He, he's trying to protect. He's, he's concerned about the control issues. He's his legacy, his kingdom. And oh, what is this? What is this? What is this? What is this? And they said, in Bethlehem in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, it's interesting. In this particular passage in chapter 2, there's actually four different places that prophetic word is fulfilled. And by the writer, he makes mention of, of this first particular one. And this passage here comes out of the book of Micah. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 and 4 says this, But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old and from ancient times. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majority, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Now, this particular passage in Micah was written like 700, 750 years before Jesus was born. And so they carried that from. They knew where he was born. In Bethlehem, that's where the king's going to come from. The Messiah is going to come from. And so some things were starting to line that really concerned King Herod at the time. Then Herod, verse 7 of Matthew 2, called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. So here, here's the Magi hanging out in town, local, you know, Starbucks, you know, trying to get word, you know, where's, where's the, uh, this uh, king of the Jews going to be born? We've been following the star. And they're saying, well, on the low down here, it's supposed to be in Bethlehem, that kind of thing. And so Herod calls them in from Starbucks. And he says, hey, he says, I hear you're looking for the king of the Jews. That's great. And um, he's in Bethlehem. And so I want you to go. You know, and when you get there, I want you immediately, immediately, I want you to come back and I want you to tell me. Because I'm going to go and I'm going to do the same thing you're doing. I want to worship him. Right? Not. What's he thinking? I got to stop this. 
I got to control this. Verse 9, after they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over a place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. And they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You know the story, right? That's where we get the three kings idea from and, and all the pageantry that comes with it. But friends, what happened when the Magi got there? To Jesus, at what particular age that he was, not necessarily an infant in the, ba- in the manger anymore, but as a toddler, that, that they worshipped him is what they did. Now, I don't know what your definition of worship is. A lot of times we think in terms of worship, you know, hey, it's just the singing that goes on before the guy talks, right? But that's not worship. Worship is giving worth to the person who deserves it. It's coming to a place of awe, standing in the presence of someone. And they came and they worshipped Jesus, not because, because of what they believed he would be and who he was and who would rise up to be for the world. They worshipped him. That was their disposition. That was the act of their heart. When God came in the body, when they were informed about it, they set everything else aside and they went and they pursued and they came to a place where they worshipped Jesus. It was a natural response of their heart because they were seeking to know God and to know truth. That was the disposition of their heart was worship. But that's not the disposition of everybody. In fact, I'll be honest. I mean, there's times in my life when it's the whole worship of Jesus and the worship of God. It is great because I'm thinking, well, you know, if I worship God and I serve God, then I'm sort of going to get God aligned in the direction of what I want to be doing. Right? What I want to be doing, what my kingdom is, and what I envision as my plan. So we'll do all the, you know, we'll do the church stuff, we'll do the prayers, we'll even do the group studies, that kind of thing. Because internally, there's really not a spirit of worship and giving up my life in awe to follow the one and to say yes before you even know the question. The one who demands lordship in us. There's really not that settled in our heart. Sometimes it's scary because then it's not necessarily true worship now, is it? We're sort of going through the motions. And, and maybe when you reflect back on your life and, yeah, there was a commitment time you made to Christ or you, you pursued God for a while in church and then something happened and, and maybe you moved away and you haven't been back in church for a while or, or maybe, you know, something happened in your life, it discouraged you and you started not believing in God. He wouldn't answer your prayers. And, and I, you know, there's some junk that sort of happens there. And if you're honest with you, maybe even as you go through the motion, there's not a real heart, a passionate heart to worship him like the Magi did. They bowed down and they worshiped him. Having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, the Magi, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, 
Instead, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Now, can you sort of hear the background music of the epic movie starting to swell up a little bit? Because what's going to happen now? The Magi who worship took off. They went another way. You, can, you, can you see Herod? Herod's probably got his people out there standing along the road in Jerusalem. And Bethlehem, really, it's like five miles just south of Jerusalem. He's got his guys out there. You're looking for him. You're looking for him. When they're coming, when they're coming, man. Where were they at? Where, I haven't seen him. Have you seen him? Where have they seen him? And word gets to him that he's been duped. He's not a happy man. He's used to controlling his situations. Even when he picked the wrong horse in the Civil War, he was smart enough to go and talk to Caesar Augustus and be able to even get more loyalty and alliance. He's always been able to work his angles. And he worked his angles with the Magi. And what are they doing? They're messing with him. He doesn't like that. He's worried. Here he is, sick, in pain. He doesn't know what's going to happen to him. Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi. He was furious. Are you glad you weren't in Jerusalem during that week when he found out he'd been outwitted? He was furious. He was furious. And he gave orders then. And it's hard for us to understand this unless you really understand who King Herod was at the time. And if you were a part of, you know, the, the, the Judea area underneath his rule, he gave orders to his soldiers to kill all the boys in Bethlehem. He decided on the nuclear option. He says, well, if I can't kill that there one who was the Jew, king of the Jews, then I'm going to slaughter all those who are two years and under in the vicinity. And that's exactly what happened in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. Can you imagine on that terrible morning, maybe afternoon, evening, his soldiers going and ransacking every house, every hut in the, in the rural areas around their side, walking in and slaughtering, killing a two-year-old and under male, killed here, killed there. And if a parent got in the way, they were killed too. The weeping and the mourning and, and all that was going on. Can you comprehend what was happening? And we don't like that part of the story. That's not a, the nice nativity scene story. But it's a part of history concerning Christ's birth. Wow, Carrie, you're going to lighten this one up pretty quick because this is heavy and it's fairly intense here. And it's the week of Christmas and all that's going on. Friends, you've got to climb in to the story. Because in the middle of the story of Matthew 2 are two different kinds of dispositions of the heart. Herod, Herod, you had your chance. You had your chance, Herod. He was only five miles south of you. You could have gone and worshipped the Son of God. But Herod was more interested in his own control and his own legacy and what was going on. In fact, you know, the, the story is told of Herod. He, 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 you know, it was actually probably with maybe within a year after this event that Herod ended up dying of that painful, painful kidney disease. 
And Herod, he, in fact, he, he, he tried to commit suicide. He just saw that was better. And in the ancient times, it was pretty hard to commit suicide. You know, he just couldn't, you know, go get some type of weapon, that kind of thing necessarily. And so he was actually caught in the act of trying to commit suicide when his cousin found him out and kept him from doing that. But it was shortly after that that he ended up, you know, facing the reality that he was going to die. And so he made another decision because he was worried about himself and what people thought and what would happen after him. He had them go and rally up all the wealthy or distinguished uh, people, the intellectual people of the day, and put them in prison. And he said, when I die, when I die in that hour, I want you to kill all these distinguished people so that on my day of death, there will be mourning in the streets. Oh, my God. Because he knew that on the day of his death, there would be a party of parties in the street. I mean, hey, Herod's done, man. Woo! We're good. But he wanted there to be mourning. And so he brought those people together and made that command. Well, he ended up dying. And thankfully, they didn't obey his command, and they released all those distinguished people. Herod, oh, Herod, Herod, what have you done? Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled when they had the killing of those kids. A voice is heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. There was the excitement of Christ's birth, but there was also a lot of pain. And a lot of pain. Can you imagine Egypt? Mary's there with Joseph, recalling where there are some friends that lost loved ones because of this evil King Herod and what he had done. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. Herod. He was known as Herod the Great. Why? He was a great builder. I mean, built the temple, built the aqueducts, the seaports. What do you think if you could have talked to Herod just maybe a few moments before he ended up dying from that kidney failure? Say, hey, Herod, um, I want to let you know something. You know, all this ambition that you have and everything. Do you realize that 2,000 years after you die, that people are still going to know your name? Really? Yeah, and they're going to sit in rows, and they're going to sit in circles, and they're going to talk about you, King Herod. You're going to be a part of this, this story. And so it's, it's a reality, but it's sort of a good news, bad news kind of thing. The good news is they're going to know your name, but the bad news is you're sort of a B character in the plot. Because um, that one who was born the king of the Jews became the savior of the world. And so your name's just going to be thrown in there. You're sort of the villain. Sorry. And Herod, though you're known as Herod the Great, you're going to be remembered as Herod the Butcher. But you... You had your opportunity, Herod. You could have worshipped him. You could have worshipped him. 
Think in terms of John, who we looked at last week. You fast forward 80 years. He's on the island of Patmos, and he's writing his gospel. He's looking back over everything, all that changed and all that transpired. He's lost his friends. Peter's been killed and Paul's been killed. The temple's been annihilated, just sort of wiped off there, and even the whole Jewish um, possibility of uh, the religion of the Jews is uh, in jeopardy in one sense. But John, who was with, with Mary, right? He took care of Mary. We talked about that. I mean, John, can you probably think John, when he was taking care of Mary through those years, would say, hey, tell me about when he went to Egypt. Tell me about what your thoughts were when you heard what Herod did and all that. What kind of fear was in your heart when then you decided, you know, because the angel spoke to go back to Israel. I mean, John was that close with the mother of Jesus. And he's trying to reflect on all of this. And that's why in John, we looked at last week, he says this. In him, in Jesus, in the word that became flesh, in him was life, past tense. And that life was the light of all mankind. He sees it for what it is. They thought Jesus was, you know, the Messiah would come to be a regional king and overthrow the Roman government. That they had it all wrong because Jesus did not come to destroy political reigns. He came to destroy the self-centered reigns in the hearts and the lives of people first. And John began to understand that. And John knew that in Christ there was life. And this life was not just light for a few people, for the Jewish people, for Judea. It was light for the whole world and for all generations, including you and I who are seated in the rows here today. John knew that this story of God become flesh, God in a body, Jesus, the Messiah who was born, the one who was worshipped by the Magi, the one who was proclaimed by the angels, the one who he saw live, the one who he was a friend with, who he was a disciple with, the one who he saw crucified on the cross, the one who was there when he ran into the empty tomb and saw that he was resurrected, the one who was there when he saw him ascended into the heavens. This John had this perspective on the story that re-engaged him day in and day out, no matter how difficult his world was, the Jewish world was, the history of when Jesus came, or what was about to happen to them in the future. He knew that in Christ there was life, and that life was the light for all mankind. It was past tense, but then he says this, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not Blown it out. It's not overcome it. I don't care where you're at spiritually this morning, whether you're five steps forward and following God or you're five steps going in the wrong direction. There's a light that's inside of you and the darkness cannot snuff that light out. And the call to you and I today in this Christmas season is to re-engage and to do what the Magi did, which was to worship Don't allow the ambition, that controlling nature, setting my own agenda. Oh, I just want to provide for my family and make my way and have, have some nice times here. Don't, don't be distracted by all the, the self-centeredness that can come in through society and through our own fallenness of sin. You bend your knee and you worship and allow the light of the world to take that darkness and expel it with a hope. A hope for you and a hope for your friends, a hope for your family.
That's why we celebrate this season. So, what about it? Is the light of the world the light that guides you every day and compels you from one season to the next? From one year to the next? Or is this story about the light of the world become sort of dulled and flat in your life? I want to ask the worship team to come up. And we're going to close with a, a song that speaks directly into this understanding about Him being the light of the world. And what our response is, whether we are followers of Christ or we're seeking some God part in our life at the moment. And as we sing this, I want you to engage in what the Spirit of God is calling you to engage as one who is created in the image of God, created by God Himself, calling you to worship. Oh, God, for all the distractions, for all the self-centeredness in my life, I want to genuinely worship. And whether you worship in quietness or lift your hands, as we sing this, if you've taken some steps backward or you've never taken any steps before, I want you to consider re-engaging with God and His Son Christ this morning. Maybe that engagement is just to say, hey, church needs to be a priority. I need to be found in a fellowship. Maybe that engagement is I need to be in a life group. Maybe I need to do that rooted thing that's, that's mentioned there. We mentioned earlier, you go on the journey. How are you going to engage? Maybe it's just prayer. Maybe you haven't talked to God in prayer for a long time. They just sort of start out by just saying, hey, you haven't heard from me for a while. But here I am. Will you worship? consequences. We see it in King Herod. And though there's a little bit of King Herod that's double-minded in all of us and control freaks and ambition-driven, may we allow the light of the world become a disposition in our heart. So as we sing this, I want you to worship. Pastor is going to receive the offering as well as your connection cards as well as this time. But let's worship Him in a spirit of